All right, River House, who is blessed? You are blessed. I think we're more blessed than we even know. The presence of the Lord is in this place, and people always ask me, how am I doing on Sunday? I say, I'm blessed. I'm in the Lord's house on the Lord's day. Amen? And this is a house of miracles. Things happen here that can't be explained. Heaven and earth come together in the house of God, and so we can come with great expectation. It says, with boldness to approach the throne of grace. There's an expectation, a bold faith that we would receive mercy and find grace in a time of need. And what we were singing about tonight is it's a day of need, amen? The hungry will be satisfied. So Lord, just keep our hearts postured in hunger that this would be a day of need, that we would come with bold faith and expectation and we say, God, come. Come and meet this place of need, this God-shaped hole, this eternal desire that you created us with to be satisfied with you and you alone. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're gonna continue in the book of Acts. Who has learned something from the book of Acts? Who has been touched by the heart of God over these last few weeks? Amen. little recap for you, Pastor AJ, about three weeks ago, opened up kind of this subtopic of a new temple, looking at Acts 3 through Acts 7. Past, uh, two weeks ago, I preached on the resurrection, who was here when I preached on the resurrection. The temple, it's a new temple where God's doing a new thing, and there is a new message, a message that was never fathomed before by humanity. The resurrection from the dead, our faith is built upon the sign and wonder of the resurrection from the dead and we preach a message of resurrection that is attested to by God with signs and wonders. Pastor Justin, who was here last week, he talked about a few aspects, talked about a new prayer, praying these God-centric prayers and a new stewardship, a new ethic around money and generosity. Like God is doing a new thing in the new temple, amen? And tonight we're gonna look at Acts 6, Acts 7, the story of Stephen, and we're going to look at a new type of leader and a new ethic of leadership that emerges in this new community called the church. If you have your Bibles, you can, you can stand, it's gonna be on the screen. We stand just to give honor and reverence to the word of the Lord. And we're gonna read all of Acts chapter six and a few verses from Acts chapter seven together. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. 
But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting on the council saw his face like the face of an angel. He gives a long message, and then I'm going to jump to the end of chapter 7, verse 54. It's at the end of his sermon to the, the Sanhedrin. He says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they'd driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. And that's the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Well, I'm going to minister, and then uh, we're, we have some baptisms at the end of this service. Uh, I have, a, I have a, a small confession. The Holy Spirit was whispering to me as I was, as I was reading this scripture. I got stressed that we, were, uh, that we were going too long in the service because I'm like, Lord, how are we going to do baptism and the message and everything? And I walked in, and Jackie was preaching up here. Wasn't she preaching? And I looked at her and I said, babe, we need to hurry. And the Holy Spirit whispered to me. He said, that wasn't good. <laughs> he said, you didn't apologize to her privately, so now I need to apologize publicly. I honestly, I feel like I, I, I grieved the Holy Spirit. So I repent to you and I repent to you and I repent to all of you. Humble me, Jesus. <laughs> all right, back to the message. I can preach now. I just had the worst conviction in my heart. Wow. <laughs> so this story of Stephen, this story of Stephen, AJ's losing it up here. <laughs> we're all humans, yeah. The story of Stephen is remarkable, and we're going to go on a little journey. Say journey. I'm actually going to show you how remarkable what it is we just read is. Like Luke is telling us something that is so profoundly, it's like a stick of dynamite full of hope that if we capture what is being articulated here, it should just absolutely wreck us with a sense of hope about what kind of transformation the message of Jesus can bring to our lives. Right, Stephen is this new type, type of leader. It's a new ethic of leadership. And I'm, we're going to go on a little journey through the scripture to actually reveal the depth of what we are capturing here in the martyrdom of Stephen. Right, so we're going to go back. We're going to look at Moses. Say Moses. 
We're going to go from Moses to Jesus. Say Jesus. That's going to take us back to Stephen. Stay Stephen. And then it's going to take it right home to you and me. Say me. Amen. All right, well, uh, I have a few verses for you. They're going to put you up. We're going to read from the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, I'm gonna, we're going to read in just a second. Pause on the, on the verse. But the book of Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible, the first five books of the Bible. Anybody know what they're called? Pentateuch. Pentateuch is like five books. And the giving of Deuteronomy, it literally means to give the law again. So the book of Deuteronomy is Moses, who wrote the first five books, he's, he's re-giving the Torah. He's doing it again. And you can ask, like, wow, that sounds kind of boring. Like, isn't the law kind of boring enough? And now you got to give it again in the book of Deuteronomy? But if you look at the context, you understand that the reason that Moses is giving the law again, say again, is because Israel, the first generation in the wilderness, has died. They've died, and now it's this new young generation that is camped just across the Jordan River. They are about to go and occupy the promised land. It's been 40 years in the making since the exodus from Egypt, and Moses' last act, it's the swan song of his ministry, is that he is going to recast, he's going to re-prophesy, you could say, the Deuteronomic call to Torah faithfulness, to, to covenant faithfulness to God. He's going to speak it to a new generation. It's like, here is my parting gift to you that I can speak into you so that you can be successful in the land when you cross it. So it's a powerful book. It's a powerful contextualized sermon that Moses is giving to a people who are about to step into the biggest transition of their life. And the book of Deuteronomy is a book about leadership. Say leadership. Moses is speaking. The first chapter talks about how he broke Israel into different forms of leadership and the divisions of leaders. Because as go the leaders, so goes the nation. That's what the biblical text shows us. It's a story. It's a compilation of stories about what God did in the life of leaders. Because as go the leaders, so go the nation. We get so consumed in our world today of what, is the, what are they doing in D.C.? What are they doing in Wall Street? What are they doing in all these places where I think God's like, no, I'm just looking for my people who are called by my name, who've been given my authority, which is the Lord of lords over all lords. As go the leaders, so go the people. I think we sometimes get in this fear trap, even as parents. Well, where are my, my kids going to go? I don't know about the teachers. I don't know about this. I don't know. No, no. As go the leaders, so go the people. As go the hearts of leaders, as go the hearts of those who are in authority, so go the people. And so Deuteronomy is a book where Moses is speaking. He's recasting, he's re-prophesying Torah to this new generation. He's saying this is the leadership that God is looking for that will make you successful in the land of promise. The first 11 chapters, scholars call it the, the book on the heart. It's the heart section. And if you read the first 11 chapters of Deuteronomy, you will be struck how many times the word heart is mentioned. Here, I, I put a few of my favorites on the screen. We're going to read them together. This is Deuteronomy 5.29. Hear the heart of God in this. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep my commandments, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. Deuteronomy 8.2, and you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. 
right? And if you simplify what Moses is speaking to, there's two primal characteristics that Moses is saying, this is the heart that God is looking for. And this, this is it. The first is he is looking for hearts that are loyal to Yahweh. If we put this in modern day, loyal to Jesus, Deuteronomy 6, 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. God would be looking for hearts that would be like Abraham. Abraham walked into the land of Baal and Asherah, which were gods of fertility, and he had a promise that he was going to have a son, and he didn't have a son for decades, but Abraham was loyal to Yahweh in the land of Baal. He didn't lift up his heart to another, but he was faithful to his God. And this is what God's looking for. He's looking for hearts that are bent in loyal love to him, that will obey him from the heart. He's not looking for contrived performance-based behavior modification. He's looking for hearts that are bent to him. Loyalty. And the second is, is righteousness and justice. God is looking for hearts who would put the community and the least of these and the, and the people that maybe could benefit yourself in no way. He's looking for hearts that would live to serve and better those people. This is what we see. This is what the book of Deuteronomy calls us. This is Deuteronomy 17, 19 through 20. This is the section where specifically Moses is speaking. This is the heart of kings. This is what the kings, this is, this, is, this is what their heart should be like. And he tells them they shouldn't store up much gold. They shouldn't get horses from Pharaoh. What famous king did both of those things? Solomon, uh-oh, wasn't listening to Moses in Deuteronomy. And it shall be well with him. Then it goes, and this is the next section. It shall be well with him, and he shall read the law all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. And right here, here's the kicker, verse 20. That his heart would not be lifted up above his brethren. So God is looking for hearts for, for the heart of leaders who would not exalt their hearts above the people, but they would live to serve the people. The king that we see who does this most effectively is actually Josiah. And Isaiah, I believe it's Isaiah 32 or 33, he's prophesying, or it's Jeremiah 32 or 33, he's prophesying to Josiah's son, and he's saying, why won't you be like your father Josiah, who fed the poor at his own table? And in the whole thing, it's a section showing that Josiah's heart was bent towards the least of these. Josiah was loyal to Yahweh, but he lifted up the poor. So God's looking for hearts of loyalty and hearts that are bent in righteousness and justice, and it's a communal righteousness. It's a heart that's bent so that the favor that comes to the leader will flow to the leader and benefit the least of these, the people that would not benefit you for your own good. You would only benefit them because of love. So Moses is speaking. This is the heart that Yahweh is looking for. This is the heart that God can exalt, that God can use, right? And and the rest of the Old Testament is essentially a narrative, right? Most of the Old Testament, so like specifically Kings, Chronicles, the book of the Judges, these are written hundreds of years later after Moses. They're written in Babylon, and they're trying to make sense of their story of how did we get from Joshua taking us across the river and conquering the land to now we are in Babylon, right? Wouldn't you be asking some questions if you had just watched your people go from exalted by God to possess the inheritance of promise to exiled in a foreign land? 
And so the historians, they're chronicling their story and they're writing their story to help disciple their nation. These are the mistakes that were made. And it's essentially a really tragic tale that leader after leader after leader, their hearts failed. They weren't loyal to Yahweh and the least of these were not benefited. And the the prophets, I'm giving you a biblical overview right now. The prophets are essentially calling the leaders of Israel out on this. You're not loyal, you're in idolatry and the poor are being oppressed. That means we know your heart is not the heart that God's looking for. And so the Old Testament is written, the, the narrative arc, you could say, is written to actually create a sense of thirst within the reader that where is the heart? Where is the one with the heart that Moses spoke about? I was reading through the Kings earlier this year and I was just reading and, you know, and he did wicked and he did wicked and he did wicked and he did wicked. And then I got to Josiah and Josiah was righteous. And I honestly just started weeping. I just started weeping because I was like, Lord, like, thank you for one heart. But why? Why do so many hearts fail? And as I was weeping, I'm like, why am I weeping? I realized it's because the same thirst is in our hearts today. We are still thirsting for the heart that would be loyal to Yahweh and actually could give itself to benefit the least of these and not become perverted by the flesh. Right, And so Israel, they walked this painful story and it leads us to the New Testament. It leads us from Moses to Jesus. Say Jesus. And Jesus gets on the scene. He's baptized. The Holy Spirit comes upon him. And at this point in the story, this is how the modern, this is how the contextual audience, they would have said, wow, this is the next potential Messiah in a long line of failed hopefuls. Was it David? No. Is it Solomon? No. Is it? No, no, no. Now the Lord is upon Jesus. So the question, the contextualized question would have been, but what's his heart like? Is his heart, is his heart the one that Moses prophesied of? Or is his heart gonna fail like every other leader's failed? And so Jesus gets baptized and where does he go? He gets led by the Holy Spirit to the wilderness, why? I brought you to the wilderness these 40 days to humble you and test you so I could see what was in your heart. So the gospel writers are actually leading us and they're opening up the shades on the window and say, here, you're going to get insight into Jesus's heart. He's baptized. He's a messianic hopeful. Let's take him to the wilderness. And he gets tempted three times by Satan and he responds three times with scriptures from which book? Deuteronomy, specifically the first 11 chapters, the heart section. His heart's getting tested, and Jesus is showing his heart. Specifically, let's zero in on this third temptation of power. He comes, Satan comes to Jesus and says, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. They've been given to me. I'll give them to you. You will be worshiped. You will receive glory. Just bow down and worship me. This is tempting. We, we forget sometimes. This is tempting Jesus, though he was God, he was human. He's being tempted by this. What is the temptation? Like, what's the appeal? What is the message? What is Satan trying to pull at with Jesus? He's trying to tell him. He's, He's saying, Jesus, this is your opportunity. You can make it about you. Right now, he said, here's the shift. Let go of the people 
make it about you. You can have the glory of leadership without the cost of leadership. Then he's saying, then he's saying, Jesus, Jesus, forsake self-denial. You don't need the way of the cross. You can get self-gratification. They're gonna worship you. And even further, like watch this. You won't be able to bring transformation to them, but they will celebritize you and they'll like you a lot more for it. Like essentially the whole temptation, the only thing that, that's, that, 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 that Jesus is losing is the ability to bring transformative power to you and me. He's being tempted to lift his heart above his brothers and become a leader for the sake of himself instead of for the sake of the ones that he was sent by the Father to bring transformation and salvation to. Because Moses says, looking for a heart that's loyal to Yahweh and lives to bring righteousness to the least of these. And what does Jesus respond? Give me the cross. Give me the cross. Paul more poetically captures this in Philippians 2. He says, though Jesus was in the form of God, he didn't crown equality with God, a thing to be grasped. And in saying that word grasped, it's pulling on a rich, you know, um, stories in the scripture of Eve grasping, taking the fruit of Abraham, taking Hagar, of David, taking Bathsheba. Jesus didn't grasp for self-gratification. Instead, he emptied himself and became obedient to the point of death on a cross so that he could bring salvation to the ones that he was called to serve. In other words, we are getting insight that Jesus' heart was really pure. It was purely bent to bring benefit to other people. He wasn't there for himself. Moses, Jesus, Stephen. Thousands of years, the Jews are waiting for the one that Moses spoke about that would have the Deuteronomic heart that was spoken of, Jesus fulfills it in a way that they could have never fathomed, right? That's amazing, but Jesus is God. But then even perhaps more spectacularly, that within an, a short amount of time, post-resurrection and the glorification of Jesus, we see this, this young, new believer in the church who is ordained a servant, like, like deacon, we make a deacon, deacon, so spiritual, it's, it's just like waiter. It's like, what are we going to call you? We'll call you servant. <laughs> we're we're going to just, you know, anybody want to be, go through a class to learn to become commissioned servants? Like, well, you can wear a name tag. It says servant. Or maybe we could, servant of servants. So a servant of the church, a new believer, this new leader within the church all of a sudden, he is getting tested in a way. Say tested. Right? Crisis reveals character. Right? When you get squeezed, what is in you comes out of you. If you are an orange, you know how you can test it out? You squeeze that orange. 
If orange juice comes out, what do you know? It's an orange. If you squeeze it, an apple juice comes out. What did you just find out? It was not an orange. It was an apple. Because when you get squeezed, what is in you comes out of you. Crisis reveals character. Stephen is getting squeezed. This young believer, this new leader in this new temple with a new message and a new way and a new hope, this new leader emerges. He's not a leader in the way of the world because the Gentiles lord leadership over those underneath them, but now he's an ordained servant. He's serving in such a way he starts getting squeezed, squeezed in a way that most of us cannot comprehend. He is getting Publicly, his character assassinated. He's getting ridiculed. He's getting drawn. He has to defend himself. And then he starts getting stoned. He's literally getting stoned. He's getting squeezed. And what is in him starts coming out of him. And what we see are two things. We see loyalty to Yahweh. Lord, into your spirit. Into your hands I commit my spirit. We see this unbroken devotion to Jesus. And then we see love, not just to the least of these, but to the very ones that are throwing stones. Forgive them. Don't hold this sin against them. Oh my gosh, this is marvelous. This is marvelous. You mean to tell me that this new believer, this servant of the church, he has the heart that Moses spoke about as well? He has a heart. He's a leader that's actually not about him. There's no self-preservation. There's no, but what about him? There's, why is he doing this? But to me, I read this and I get hopeful that I'm like, the spirit of God can actually put the heart of Jesus, the only one who had the heart that when everything was against him, when the rubber hit the road, He was the only one in all of human history that showed us he had the heart that didn't fail. He had a heart that remained loyal to God no matter what it cost. And the heart that was bent to to bring benefit to the least of these, to people that could never bring him anything of self-gain, he gave everything for. But then you mean to tell me that by the Spirit, now that heart can get put into servants in the church? This is marvelous. Stephen is showing us that the church is a new type of leadership and it's not just wishful dreaming to say we actually are called to lead in the way that Jesus led. No, we're we're actually called to lead just like Jesus led. We're called to be people whose hearts are actually transformed to such a way that if you were to squeeze us, what would come out of us would look like Jesus. Is my phone right there? I'm gonna read. I have this. I have this Heidi Baker story. I feel like I'm supposed to read this. I haven't. I have it saved in my phone. This is just. This is just the perfect story. Heidi is one of my heroes because she challenges me. Say so it's not just. So now we're gonna go Moses, Jesus, Stephen, Heidi. <laughs> just prepare yourself. Her, her and Roland, in their early years, when they were doing their PhDs, they lived in London. Heidi Baker, is, she, she's the, uh, the leader of Iris Ministries. It's a global ministry. It has hundreds of thousands of churches, and they're seeing a profound move of God in the nation in Mozambique. But this is, 
This is her story of their early years in ministry when they lived in London, when nobody knew their names. When we lived in London, we spent a lot of time on the streets ministering to the homeless. During this time, I met a dying alcoholic named Patrick. Nearly every day for two years, I would tell him that I loved him and that Jesus loved him. And nearly every day, he would get really close to my face, look straight into my eyes, and tell me to go to hell. I kept bringing him food and telling him that I loved him. And I kept crying out to Jesus to teach me how to communicate his love to this man. One of my constant prayers is for the Lord to teach me to love. I don't want any other thing but to live inside the heart of Jesus and to manifest his love to a dying world. Nearly every day for years, I would visit Patrick and tell him about love. Often he'd spit at me. Sometimes he would take my food and sometimes he'd throw it away. One day as I was out on the streets again, a woman I was ministering to began to beat me. She was a very angry and broken person. She'd been raped 16 times and had spent a year in the hospital with a broken pelvis. She was a lesbian and dressed like a man. I often told her that I loved her and that Jesus loved her as I held her, fed her, and ministered to her. One day she was very drunk and stoned. She was beating me and pushing me, but all I could feel was overwhelming love for her. When I looked at her, she was beautiful. Jean had a broken bottle and she said she was going to rip open my face and throw me into the River Thames. I told her how amazingly beautiful she was. I knew that she too was called to adoption and predestined to be a daughter of God. As she told me she was going to kill me, all I could see in her was beauty. I told her I loved her. After some time, I began to feel very tired and thought I would either faint or die. I told God that whatever happened, I wanted his love to be known in that place. Patrick was watching all this happen, and eventually he said he was calling the police. I told him not to because I didn't want Gene to go to jail again. Then that man, who for two years had told me to go to hell, came and rescued me from her. For two whole years I loved him, but he couldn't see understand or feel that love because there was too much pain in his own heart. Patrick grabbed me away from Jean, started sobbing on that street and says, for years you told me about Jesus. Now I've seen his love and I want him. We just held each other as he fell apart. He held me and I held him in his dirty clothes and his scabies, lice and alcoholic state. I just held him. He met, that G- he met Jesus that day because he saw love. What do you do with that? One of the reasons that Heidi scares me is because I know that there's no way I could perform that. I couldn't muster that kind of love up. Right, and that's the reality when we look at Jesus' heart, when we look at Stephen's story, when we read Heidi's testimony, is it, it, it reveals to us, it exposes that there is a heart the heart of Jesus, that's just, it's sanctified. It's holy. It's, it's everything that Moses spoke to in Deuteronomy. It is a heart that is loyal to Yahweh and lives to bring benefit to other people. And I think that so many people have been sold like bad salesmen is how they see Christianity. It's how they see the gospel. It's like false promises of this transformative love. But if it's like, it's not real. It's like, where's the hook? Where's the bait? And here's the thing. 
speaking on leadership, a new type of leadership tonight is I think that the world is thirsting for a love like Stevens, for a love like Heidi's. I think the world is thirsting for leaders that are not actually trying to fill a vacancy of significance in their life by ascending some ladder or some platform to get a following or to get significance or to get promotion for the sake of themselves. And this is one thing to say, but it's another thing to live. Because I think a lot of the church has bought this message. It's like, you know what? We're gonna do the same thing and walk the same path of the world, but we're gonna do it in the name of Jesus. And we're gonna ascend to leadership the same way that the world does, but then we're gonna do it in the name of Jesus. But this is the truth. You don't ascend to leadership the same way that the world does. You don't promote yourself, but then just tag in the name of Jesus to it. You don't climb the ladder of promotion in the church or outside the church and then just tag the name in the name of Jesus to it. Like when I was a kid, my dream was to be a pro golfer in the name of Jesus. I just wanted to be rich, successful, and famous in the name of Jesus. Right? It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work because what gets you somewhere is what sustains you once you get there. And if you have to promote yourself to that place, you'll have to promote yourself to stay in that place. And you'll promote yourself with ways that are not beneficial towards those that you serve. I find that a lot of people in the Western context, the reason that they're leaders is because they promoted themselves, but they actually need the people to fill a void in themselves. And so their leadership is cut off at the knees because there's no transformative power that will flow through a leader that needs the people to feel significant about themselves because the call of leadership is not to make sure that you still have following and people patting you on your back and saying, I think you're the best thing ever. The role of the leader is to give their life in a way that's self-giving and radically oriented towards other people in a way that says, though none go with me, still I will follow. That's the call of the New Testament leader. Though no one goes with me, I'll still follow you, Lord. And I think leadership in the body of Christ is the consequence of an abandoned, consecrated yes to Jesus. I think that too many Christians spend too much time worrying about when the right hand of God is going to promote them, when the reality is that the scriptures tell us nothing of what we need to do to be promoted other than to humble ourselves and to present ourselves in a broken and contrite place so that the spirit of God can have its way in us and make our hearts look like his heart. Because here's the thing, this is the truth, church. I have a holy fear. I have a reverence in me that I do not want to be promoted in any way prematurely because I have a fear that if God were to open a door and I was to walk through in my own fleshly zeal, what would my leadership come down to? I would be influencing them to become like me. That is not the call of the New Testament Christian. The call of the leader in the body of Christ today is that the heart of Jesus is like, if my heart doesn't look like Jesus, then I'm not influencing people in a way that's helping them for eternity. All I'm doing is getting likes and this and that to just boost my own ego. And this is the deal. People celebritize this. I'm, I'm, on a, I'm, I'm preaching right now. I'm on a soapbox but I get grieved sometimes when I see the body of Christ following celebritized messaging and all of this, and are we even asking ourselves, what are we looking at on the inside? What does the heart look like that I'm following? And so we've created this whole ecosystem where we prop up and celebritize and then we watch them go and then we watch them fall and then we rip them apart and we're like, how can they fall? But I'm like, what are we looking at in the first place? 
Who are we trying to follow? Right? Leaders should scare us a little bit if they're leading us like Jesus. Leaders shouldn't look like culture. They shouldn't look like a, a Christianized version of what's cool in society. Jesus was not cool. Jesus was powerful. Jesus was provocative. Jesus was transformative. So I, I, what are we following? What's our aim? What is our model? Our model is Philippians 2. That's the heart. That's the heart that we're called to follow is Jesus. And if we're needing to fill a vacancy of significance in our lives through becoming leader, for becoming titled, for becoming this, it's just, it's just a broken tape that does nothing. I don't want to be a leader with a following. I want to be a leader that brings transformative power. That's the only type of leadership that I want to bring because I think that's my destiny and I think it's your destiny. But it starts with a heart that says, I'm going to follow Jesus the path that he showed which is the path of humility, which is the path that says, I'm gonna choose downward mobility and I'm gonna trust that if I humble myself unto the Lord and I learn to be transformed in here through serving people and giving myself to benefit others, the call, loyalty to Yahweh and a self-giving ethic where you pour your life out to benefit other people. And if you want the most potent form of transformation, do it in quiet, do it in secret, serve in ways that no one will ever pat you your back. Serve people that can never bless you or benefit you. Serve people that might spit in your face. What comes out of you? That's what transforms you. We, we have this, our call is not to transform people. Our call is to serve people and in the serving, create opportunity for God to transform us. Because as go the leader, so goes the nation. What if the transformation that's needed, societally speaking, is actually the transformation of the hearts of God's people. What if we focused our aim on the wrong places? That we think it's our call to go and lord over authority and to bring change to broken places. No, we know there's brokenness out there, but God isn't asking us to go out there and change what we can't, aren't called to change because the only thing that we actually have control over is ourselves. And God is looking for leaders that will say, rather than focusing my energy on out there and all the things that I can't control, I'm going to focus my energy right here and I'm going to humble myself and create space for God to do his work of transformation in me. And this is the thing, what God does to you, he'll do through you. God is looking for more room. Revival takes place when those who think they know realize they don't and they repent and then they're transformed. When I hear Stephen's story, when I hear Heidi's story, when I look at Jesus, I say, Lord, there's things I don't know. There's things I don't know. And yet this gives me hope that if he can do it for Stephen, he can do it for you. 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 He can do it. What does God need? He just needs humility. He just needs humility. He just needs people to say, I'm going to humble myself, put my, my clay on the potter's wheel and say, God, pour a little more water, soften me out and make my heart look like him. Heidi Baker still 
intimidates me. She's still, I can never get her, her voice out of my head because she more than anyone like made it real to me that God really can sanctify our hearts to look like Jesus's heart. Her desires change, her pleasures can change. Like I'm not there, I'm not there. But I want my heart to be so bent that me just gets crucified away, yeah? That's the call of the New Testament leader. That's the call, right? If we want to disciple our children, if our children see a pure heart in mom and dad, which everyone, you know, we all know purity. You can, you can taste purity from a mile away, right? And this is the thing, was that the Philippians 2 ethic of leadership, you touch the unadulterated joy of true generosity where I truly am here to serve you for your sake. That's joy, you guys. That's joy. So I, I'm just, we got to, I don't feel like I'm done. I don't know where I'm supposed to go, but I don't feel like I'm done. I just sense the conviction of the Holy Spirit here in, in, in a way of it's almost like a cautionary flag that we would just, I don't know, present the things like it says Hebrews 4 says that the word of the Lord is sharper than a double-edged sword and it pierces to the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And, and I, I, in some ways, I feel like this is a cautionary word. It's a, it's a call to an ethic of leadership, which James and John come to Jesus and they ask him for leadership. Does Jesus rebuke their ask? No. He says, you don't know what you ask. He says, will you drink the cup that I'll drink? So he responds to their ask with his ask. And that cup that they were to drink, it was the cup of suffering. He was going to go and go to the cross. And he's asking them, will you walk the path of the cross? Because if you'll drink the cup that I'll drink, then you can lead the way that I lead. And I guess the question that I feel just, it's, it's as if it's rising within my spirit, is will we be a people of the cross? You know, who was here on the anniversary service? We heard these prophetic words. Yeah, they're, they're wonderful. They're powerful. They're speaking of that, that the Lord wants to birth something through this house that would be of benefit to other communities and other in our city and, and other places, right? It's speaking of influence, right? But the question is, will we walk the way of the world or will we walk the way of the cross? And I just, I just have a sense that the Holy Spirit 
may be bringing conviction tonight to just areas of your life where he wants to, he wants to refine motives. He wants to, he, he wants like to, to come into territory. Some of you may say, I don't know that type of love for people. You know what? I can only say that I've touched that type of Heidi store. I've, I've touched that a few times, but I don't live in that. I want to live in that, right? Like it, we, we all have places where the spirit of God is growing us and shaping us. And I just, I don't know. I just want to invite anybody that you sense that, that there's a, you just want to give space and room to the Holy Spirit. Before we move into baptisms, I'm just going to invite you to stand right now. Just to stand and just, just to say we, we make room for you, Holy Spirit, to just convict however it is that you'd want to convict, to just, it's almost like that you could sift the thoughts, the intentions. And that I want us to just wait upon the Lord for just, I don't know, a, 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 a moment of silence and that you would create room right now that the Holy Spirit could convict anything that needs to be convicted and, 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 and do work upon our hearts, almost like the, the surgeon's scalpel, that, Lord, you would come and that your conviction would cut our hearts in any area that needs to be cut and that you would cut away, you would circumcise our hearts, God, of selfishness, of the self-nature, of self-desire. Lord, that anything that needs to be refined or purified right now. So just wait on the Lord and we'll just let this space be a space for the Holy Spirit the voice of God to speak and convict. just encouraged in anything that's being pulled up in you, that you would just confess, you'd repent. Just confess it. You can process it more later, but right now, just repent to the Lord. If it's around uh, the way you steward money, if it's, you know, whatever he showed you, a relational thing, if it's uh, something, if it's just your heart, a place where your heart is sick, your heart is unsanctified. Your heart is not the heart that Moses spoke about. Just, just repent. And we just say, Holy Spirit, would you come and wash away? We would just yield to the, the surgeon, the good and faithful surgeon, that you would cut it away. Lord, and we open. Just tell the Lord you open your heart to him in the area that he's knocking. And some of you, it may be a painful place that's opening up. It may be painful clarity of 
a place in your life. You know, often the things like pride, pride hides. You know, I was so lost in pride that I, it, it was as if I was like every pore of my body was contaminated with it and I couldn't get clean of it no matter how hard I scrubbed. I had scrubbed for five years, scrubbing, trying to scrub self-righteousness out of me and I could not scrub it no matter how hard I scrubbed. And it was in a moment like this of conviction that a very painful uh, disclosure of the Spirit came that revealed the root of self-righteousness in my life and it catalyzed profound transformation. And so I just, Holy Spirit, whatever you are opening up in the hearts of my brothers and my sisters, I ask that you give us courage to open. You say that if we repent, that times of refreshing from the Holy Spirit will come upon us. Lord, we cannot sanctify ourselves, but we call upon the one who can sanctify. The one who, because of the resurrection, you can redeem everything, including even the most broken, selfish places of our hearts. They can be redeemed. Lord, the, 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 the patterns of selfishness that show up in the way we spend our time, the way we spend our money, the way we use our words, the way that we, we, we say yes or we say no to you or to ourselves, Lord, that you can redeem it all. And we just present the hearts of our community. Lord, then we just say, would you come and form us, Holy Spirit? Would you come and, and actually, by the Spirit, do what you did to Stephen's heart? Lord, we know that only months before he was martyred, his heart was not in the condition that we find it in, in Acts chapter 7. Lord, he was born again by the Spirit. He was resurrected and redeemed. Lord, and we see in the text, Lord, a heart, a picture of transformation that we can't do ourselves. And so we just say, Holy Spirit, would you come and sanctify? Would, you, would your conviction lead to repentance and would repentance lead to transformation within this house, God? We just thank you that you are able. You are able to do what we are not able to do. And we pray that in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. What we're gonna do is we're gonna close with baptism. I'm gonna tell you why that's fitting. You can, you, can, um, you, can, you can take a seat. You can stay standing if you want. If you need to get your kiddos, you can get your kiddos, and you can come back in. Um, we're going to probably not start baptisms for a few more minutes, so I'd encourage that we just quick, quick, quick. Let's just, let's just sing a song of worship real quick. And why everybody, like, get your kids and then come back in. We're going to have a big family moment. This will be like a family thing. So rather than rush it, we just... Yeah, let's just stand together, everybody that doesn't have a kiddo to pick up. And we just say, Holy Spirit, let's just...
your hearts. This is our heart crying out for his heart to change it, to make it new. Make us living martyrs, God. Make us people that don't think of ourselves. You can do it. You can do it, Lord. baptize tonight. Baptism is one of two uh, primary sacraments in the church. All a sacrament is, is it is a, uh, a ritual that imparts grace, which essentially means that what we're about to do with the immersion in water is a heaven on earth moment. There's a physical reality that people are going to get baptized in the water, but what it's symbolizing is uh, both our burial into the waters of baptism and that we are raised into a resurrection life. Right? It's, it's a picture of transformation. It's what we're talking about. Uh, when we talk about our hearts tonight, we're saying our hearts need to be redeemed, need to be resurrected with Jesus. And so uh, Colossians 2 says that your whole self ruled by the flesh, that's selfishness, it was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the bed from the dead. So tonight, that those being baptized, um, they will be immersed in water as a symbol of them being buried with Christ and then also raised with them into a new life, that the old life will be completely crucified. It will be put away and it will be redeemed. Heart, spirit, soul, body, right? This baptism is not just for the people being baptized. This is actually a corporate moment where we all together get to do two things. We get to remember 
that we too were baptized with Jesus. We were saved. We were baptized. Like whenever it was, some of you it was last week, some of you it was 10 10 years ago, some of you it was 40 years ago, but this is actually a time where we get to remember and share that this baptismal tank is what gave us our identity. It's why we have hope that our hearts can be redeemed and transformed is because we are the redeemed of the Lord and that together we were all once dead in Christ and we've been raised with him to new life by the Spirit. Amen? So we together get to remember and we also get to look forward that we have just tasted the first fruits of this resurrection life. And this is not just speaking to our past, it's actually speaking to our future that Jesus is gonna make all things new. And so we get to partake and we get to worship together. We get to lean into this sacramental moment that the grace of God would come upon our brothers and sisters being baptized, but it would come upon all of us as we together remember that this is who makes us who we are and this also prophesies to who we're becoming, the redeemed, resurrected in Christ that we would actually look like him, heart, mind, soul, body, amen? Amen. So we are, uh, every person, we're, and if you're being baptized, you can come up. We're, you can just come up here and stand with me on the stage. Uh, every person being baptized, this is. <laughs> this is so exciting. Come on over here on my left. Uh, th- there's a really simple, it's like three requirements to be baptized. And um, the first is that you need to be able to put your faith into your words. You need to be able to confess, this is what following Jesus means to me. And each one of these um, brothers and sisters, they're going to do that in just a moment. And then also in the baptismal tank, there's two questions that will be presented. The first is, do you renounce all other spiritual authority in your life? And do you commit to follow Jesus for the rest of your days? Um, And those three things, those are what we require um, to be baptized. And I say this because some of you, I believe, may be stirred tonight. You've never been baptized, immersed in the water as a picture of both being buried with Christ and then immersed and raised to new life by the Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit is working upon you tonight, Jackie was so convinced. She said, I'm bringing three towels because the Holy Spirit told me to bring three towels for three people that I think are going to get baptized that didn't plan on it when they walked in these doors. And so the invitation is open, that if you want to come and put your faith in your words and a public confession, and if you can renounce all spiritual authority in your life outside of Jesus, and you want to follow him all the days of your life, you can come forward. Pastor Justin, once we get in the tank, we'll facilitate, we'll be up here, and you just come forward, you'll testify, and we'll be baptized. We have extra clothes, and we have extra towels, amen? All right, well, let's, uh, let's give it up. We're going to have each one of these ones share their, uh, their faith to all of us, and then we are going to baptize, all right?